1: to new books in language today i'm talking to john McWhorter of columbia university about his book the language hoax in the book subtitled why the world looks the same in any language he examines the claim that language shapes cognition the sapir wolf hypothesis he contends that in fact the influence of language on how we think is marginal and the idea that speakers of different languages see the world differently is a major exaggeration in this interview we discuss why this is the case and what is attractive for people about the idea that each language comes equipped with its own worldview. We talk about the history of that idea and some of its political significance, and we consider how the discipline of academic linguistics has developed and reacted to the idea in the past decades. I'm delighted to welcome John McWhorter to talk about his new book, The Language Hoax, in which he challenges the view that the language we speak significantly influences the way we think. John, what prompted you to write this book?
0: I wrote this book because it is a very popular idea especially among people who are interested in language or anthropology and with the media as well that the language you speak shapes the way that you perceive the world and I think that for a lot of people there's an appeal in thinking that if there are say six thousand different languages in the world there's six thousand different pairs of glasses that we can look at and I think the idea also has appeal because It's a very handy way for privileged Westerners such as us to understand, to show that we understand that particularly indigenous people are our cognitive equals. It it gives us, I think, a justifiable sense of enlightenment and I think even goodness to think, yes, the tribesmen might be seeing colors differently than we do. The tribesmen might be seeing sources of evidence in more detail than we do so all human brains are equal the idea has great appeal and the problem is that as appealing as it is like many things that we wish were true it really hasn't been shown to be true by the psychologists who are actually working on that way of looking at language and thought so does language have an effect on thought yes a tiny eensy weensy bit But the idea that if you speak language X, then you're thinking in a way that corresponds to language X, and by extension, that the culture connected with the language is encoded in how the language works, it just doesn't hold up. And so it's shoddy science. And I also discuss in the book how it also ends up making us condescend to the very people who we're trying to elevate in looking at languages in this way. So I thought, it was time for there to be a go-to argument from the other side and some of these issues are not perfectly cut and dried I can't be claiming to be you know Moses off of the mount but in general if you're trying to address the language and thought hypothesis if you're interested in warfianism then what you find is a great many books that are written as if it is an accepted fact or close to it and I thought there needs to be at least one book showing that there's another way of looking at it, especially because I think if you talk to most linguists in particular, they would agree with me or at least see that I have a lot of decent points. I'm not saying anything particularly unique. I'm just broadcasting what I think a lot of common consensus is because I think that there is a certain – I, I, it's socio-political incorrectness about dwelling too much on what doesn't work about the language and thought hypothesis, and I understand that, but I think we need to go for the empirical, we need to go for truth, especially because, as I said, looking at the language and thought hypothesis in the real way, looking at what the data really say, and especially what they don't, I think ultimately creates a more humanistic way and a more egalitarian way of looking at the world's people's than the standard languages thought popular cocktail party view.
1: Yeah, um, it's interesting you, you mentioned the idea of that being a, a popular view and that linguists in particular are, are quite skeptical about that view. It's my impression from, from the way you describe the literature in the book that you think the, the scientific or the more scientific end of the literature is reasonably balanced but it's been distorted increasingly in the retelling and popularization. Is that, is that a fair assessment?
0: That is very much true. And so it's very important to stress here that countless experiments have shown that a language can affect thought in tiny but interesting ways and so for example in Russian there's no one word for blue there's a separate word for dark blue and a separate word for light blue and it turns out that Russians are a tiny bit faster at distinguishing where dark blue shades off into light blue exactly 124 milliseconds on the average faster and the way the experiment has been constructed by Lara Barditsky who's a psychologist now at the University of San Diego it's clear that it's the language it certainly has nothing to do with culture there's nothing about being Russian that makes you perceive blue in a different way it's the language that makes you a little bit quicker at that just a little and there are experiments like that with all sorts of languages the problem is that it makes it out into the newspapers and the magazines and today the blog posts, etc as if it means that a Russian person is walking around perceiving blue in a more popping way than we are and that extends to all sorts of other differences between languages where you could say that wow those people are seeing X completely differently from us and it's because of their language and no Psychological experiment has ever shown any difference of that magnitude. And what it comes down to is, are we talking about world views? None of those experiments have ever shown anything that we would call a world view. Um,
1: as you allude to in your introductory discussion, this this idea has a you know, obviously has a certain appeal, um, particularly as, as something that people can can grasp onto and and talk about as a sort of factoid about the way that things are supposed to be. Um, the idea of the whole sort of, sapir wolf hypothesis has this uh, quite interesting history in terms of the, the kinds of perhaps rather unexpected political purposes that, it, that it's been associated with. Um, you talk about some of the sort of less palatable consequences of that idea. I mean, how, how has that played out?
0: Well, the um, original idea of what is often called Warfianism was to show that the Hopi Native Americans are more sophisticated in thought than the typical even educated person thought back in the 30s. And so certainly the whole language of thought idea arose with exactly what I think gives it appeal today, which is that it showed Westerners that there's no such thing as a primitive person. And so Worf's idea was that the Hopi language doesn't have any markers of tense, no ways of indicating time, and that that meant that the Hopi see time as cyclical. And for Worf, that was neat. That was actually in many ways better than our so-called Western way of seeing time as a matter of being the past and the present and the future. Now, that's a really neat idea. I was exposed to that idea when I was in college. You can't help but love it. Now, as it happens, for one thing, it's not true about Hopi. Worf was a brilliant man, but he wasn't really a linguist, and there was only so much known about Hopi at the time, and his facts were wrong. Hopi has, you know, tense just like European languages do. There is a different... Hopi cultural way of looking at things certainly and I don't deny that but the idea that their language is making them see the world in a certain way or even and this is what I think many people would prefer when they hear about the problems with this stuff or even the idea that it's a holistic relationship it's the language and the culture and the culture and the language it just doesn't work that's not what Hopi is like at all but in the meantime what you get when you really try to apply Warfinism consistently is that you find that for everything that's cool in some language, like for example, Hopi supposedly not having any tense, you'll find that there are other things in languages where if you're going to link that thing in the language with thought, it's not cool. And that sort of thing quite frankly gets swept under the rug by people who study this sort of thing. And that's what I mean by all of this being shoddy science and so a quick example is Chinese Chinese is a language where if you learn it from a European language the overriding impression is how much less they have to say in a sentence how much gets left left to context and one of those things is counterfactuality hypotheticality you don't have to do as many of the would have's and the heads and if he might have a lot of that gets left to context and they communicate just fine but If you do the Warfianism routine, then if you look at Chinese, you think, hmm, that must mean that the Chinese aren't as sensitive to the counterfactual and the hypothetical, and let's admit it, that's saying that saying the Chinese really aren't as bright. Now, a credential psychologist tried just that. He had no malice in, in, in his intention, but back in the early 80s, he did some experiments that seemed to show that to speak Chinese was to be somewhat less sensitive to the counterfactual and the hypothetical. And you know, there was a long trail over the next 25 years of attempts to refute that man's work because all of a sudden here's a warfian idea that isn't appealing but the thing is there are all sorts of things in languages where you could draw conclusions that were negative like that if we don't want to accept the idea that Chinese creates a worldview in its speakers because of its relative lack of necessity of counterfactuals, then we can't have the cool things either. What it really is, is that the way language affects thought can't be accepted as a worldview. If you don't want the Chinese worldview to be a dim one, then you can't have, for example, the Russian worldview being one where Picasso's blue period paintings pop more than they do for people who speak English. It all just comes out as a wash.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it seems to me very interesting the way in which that idea has sort of um, historically been been motivated in that sense. It, it's sort of almost surprising, encouraging but surprising that this idea of of difference was associated sort of in the early decades of the 20th century in in the Whorfian tradition with uh, with the idea that so-called primitive cultures were actually going to be superior. Mm-hmm. Whereas of course it could equally be used under other um, political currents of thought Exactly. towards the converse.
0: Exactly. Yeah, it really is exactly that. And really, you can make good arguments either way, if you're going to call it worldview, because language does affect thought a tiny bit. But if you're going to look at something about a language of an indigenous group and think well that couldn't possibly be a matter of their thought because it's something that we don't want to think about then if that's not a worldview then none of the cool things are either and I thought that something like that needed to be shared in my book that's a lot of why I wrote the language hoax because what a lot of it comes down to when you talk about this sort of thing with people who are big fans of warfianism is who's to say what a worldview is so, okay, 124 milliseconds is the average difference in a Russian speed at detecting when dark blue becomes light blue. Who are we to say that that isn't a world view? And yes, there's a where do you draw the line issue there. And I think it needs to be said, where you draw the line as to where it's a world view is wherever you'd want to draw it if the trait weren't cool. And therefore, what you end up seeing is something that is really neat in psychology. I tell my students about the morphine experiments all the time and how interesting it is that there are these tiny effects. But it cannot be a matter of trying to sell the world on the idea that languages are all giving us our own different acid trips for the simple reason that they aren't.
1: It does seem as though uh, some of the dispute between the, between the two sides of this debate centers around this question of what is, a, what is, as you say, a sufficiently profound difference to constitute, mm-hmm. well, maybe a worldview, or to be interesting in, exactly. in some sense. Um, is, is it fair to say there's, really, there's not really any um, knockdown evidence for anything that we can look at and interpret as a really substantial difference in our outlook?
0: Nothing like that has ever been shown. Now, what has been shown is that culture can be reflected in language and there are times when people look at stark cultural differences and tell us that what's going on is that it's the language that's making people think that way but that's a rather backwards way of thinking of it and so the classic experiment and this is one that warfian fans often bring out is that there are people in um, Australia Who instead of saying that something is in front of them or in back of them will always say that something is north or south and of course the directions don't change and so if they're standing and facing north and there's something in front of them they'll say that it's north of them turn that person around they don't say that the thing is in back of them they say it's north of them now that is one of the most fiercely interesting things I think most of us have ever heard you would never think that human beings would process life that way The people who have studied this sort of culture want us to think that we're supposed to look at that and think their language is making them do that and so their language has these terms for north and south instead of front and back and so the language makes them think that way. No, it's that their culture and their environment have created words in their language that correspond to something that they need. Those people, as might not surprise you, live on very flat land. They need to keep north and south and west and east in mind in a way that you and I don't. There is no documented group that does that where there are more landmarks, and those very same people, once they end up living in cities, for better or for worse, very quickly start to let the north, south, and the west and the east go. So there are differences that you see that some morphians will say prove that the language creates the worldview. But I think most of us would look at these groups. I think often, I hate to put it this way, but I think many children would look at these situations and say, hmm, isn't it interesting how the culture is different? And of course, because we communicate with words and grammar, the language will correspond to aspects of the culture. That's something quite different from something like Russian where the idea is that in the language there happens to by chance be this difference between dark and light blue and so therefore it really is the language that's creating the difference and in that case we get back to well what is a world view and we measure it by thinking about whether or not we want the Chinese to be portrayed as dumb because their language is more telegraphic than Russian or a great many others.
1: Sure. I mean, going back to the coordinate systems, as I read it, the claim of that literature, or the, if you like, most interesting claim, the one that goes furthest towards the idea of a worldview, is the is the idea that people with the north, south, east, west kinds of systems uh, do dead reckoning, even when circumstances don't call for it, so mm-hmm. they have to track whether objects are north or south of each other, rather than just to the, to the left or to the right. Exactly. That's not something that you could say is really constitutive of a worldview. Um What I wondered really was whether our inability to find things that were constitutive of a worldview is just because that concept is itself really quite nebulous and we don't know what we're looking for a lot of the time.
0: Well, you know, I think that in terms of what most people are looking for in terms of a worldview, the coordinate issue would be one of them, the idea being that these are people who walk around with a sense of the compass at all times. I right now am sitting in a basement and I can intellectually think to myself given that the Hudson River is over there. I think now I know what north is. I just work that out but that is not something that I keep in my mind. Whereas there are people who would have no trouble with that whatsoever. You could take them, make them dizzy, put them, you know, wherever in this whole house. That's a a worldview. And so I think there are people who have interestingly differing worldviews. That's what we call anthropology. The question is whether those views are, to any significant extent, created by how your verbs work, how your prepositions work, how your language works. And I think that when it comes to how languages are interesting, there are so many different ways that a language can be fascinating. We don't need this fragile construct that language is interesting because it corresponds to something specific about people's cultures. There's just so much more.
1: So uh, going back to the question of how this idea interfaces with linguistics, um, you discuss also the sort of conceptual opposition of Wolfianism to the um, universalism of Chomskyan linguistics. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, do you feel that's something that's been important in how the idea has been received and how it's developed in in that definitely discipline?
0: Definitely. That is a lot of it culturally. And as with many in, culturally in terms of linguistic culture, culture among linguists, and as with many cultural things, I don't think this is felt explicitly, but Noam Chomsky basically revolutionized linguistics starting in the mid-60s with his idea that Human beings have an inborn syntax, and that despite how different languages seem all over the world, all of them are variations on a single inborn pattern. What differs is the words, and you fiddle with some dials and switches, but basically, we're all speaking the same language with different word shapes. And that theory is put forth with a very dense jargon, and as the decades pass, the mechanism is ever more abstractly related to anything that even most intelligent or enlightened or even learned people would think of as language at all and so there's a challenge in knowing what those people are talking about you can't just open up one of their articles and read it on the beach it all looks kind of mathy. and so there is a feeling among many linguists, that that way of looking at things is quite detached from anything that language is. And there's also a certain amount of resentment because one can feel from some adherents of that school that there's a sense that, If you don't understand that way of looking at things, then you're not as bright as the people in the Chomsky and Crowd. And some of them have been known to say that what they're doing is the only question about language that any intelligent person would want to ask. If you're looking at anything else, how language changes or how language relates to cognition in general, none of that is genuinely linguistics. That's the culture that there's been. It's all kind of analogous to the, the serialists in classical music back in the day, right down to that there aren't really that many of these people, but boy, is there a certain cultural cachet, there's a certain glamour. Noam Chomsky's probably got an IQ of 500 and is a very good arguer, and many of his acolytes are the same. So. There is a kind of resentment that many people have of that Chomskyan paradigm, and so Warfianism has a certain appeal because it's all about language as spoken by actual people and connected to cultures. It seems like what language really ought to be. It's more intuitive. It's more humanistic. It's more interdisciplinary. And so I think for many, the idea is one way that you show that you're somebody who is interested in language rather than this rather. Algebraic and sometimes vaguely hostile seeming universal grammar syntax paradigm is that you 're into warfianism, which is about how your grammar is not just some abstract clot of features in your brain that don 't seem to have anything to do with how we express ourselves instead it 's culture it is the things that make human beings human it 's the sorts of things that have to do with sunny skies and popping blues and sources of evidence etc and so. The idea is either you're one of these Chomskyans or certainly you're going to be a Warfianism and understand that language is about what the people who speak them. But, you know, you can understand that language is about the people who speak it without being um, someone who falls for the idea that the way a grammar is put together corresponds with the way people are seeing the world and you know i would be the first person to jump in with celebrating that as being true if it were but it just isn't if we want to be scientific the Chomskyans are certainly scientific if the rest of us are going to be scientific then we have to look at how the world really is and so that's another aspect of the language hoax that i think is important you can understand that language and culture are connected which they certainly are without thinking that they're connected in the way that benjamin lee wharf quite well-intentioned but misguided taught us to starting back in the 30s.
1: I yeah, wondered where you stood on the work by to the likes of Evans and Levinson about uh, the idea of understanding, as I read it, understanding universal or universal properties, shared properties, through exploring the differences rather than looking for similarities which they argue are, are not all that easy to come by. Right, right.
0: It's certainly worth trying to find universals of language in some sense because it seems rather evident at this point that human beings are specified in some way to learn language. Now the Chomskyans idea is that what we're genetically specified for is something extremely difficult to conceive of as a product of natural selection as a component of what we know of human psychology however it would be quite interesting to find out what's actually up there one senses that it would be quite general given how very different languages are one senses that it would be very deeply tied up with other aspects of cognition but certainly one must look for the universals warfianism is about looking at the differences And I think that most people who come from linguistics from the outside find those differences more interesting than the universals themselves. And as I said, that's partly because if you know anything about linguistics as a science, then the universals are often exposed to you as the rather forbidding and I think on-the-ropes Chomskyan paradigm. But then also I think if you're interested in languages and you have a sense of how much they vary, you can see that the universals are going to be pretty broad and so yes, sensitivity to time, maybe past, maybe future, but you know, there are languages that don't have tense. Yes, there's probably going to be some innate sensitivity to the difference between what we call a noun and a verb. Maybe the other stuff, however, are things that our minds can just handle that have evolved from those noun and verb originals, but that we're not specified for. After all, we can read, we can drive, we're not genetically specified for those things. Much of language might fall under that rubric as well. So we can see, very interesting to find the universals. Warfianism, though, is exactly what appeals to people because it takes us away from that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that something linguistics teaches us is that it's very difficult to to trace the relation between some kind of surface feature manifest in language and any kind of cognitive process underpinning it. So by the same token, as, as indeed you made clear in the discussion of various examples, it's quite Difficult to tell anything more than a just-so story about how a particular manifestation in language ought to be a signal of a particular uh, cognitive predisposition.
0: Oh, yeah, this is definitely true. The sexy thing about language for many people, including me, is that the pathway between what comes out of our mouths and what the cognitive underpinning is is often so indirect language is messy because it has evolved or I often like to say morphed because evolve makes it sound like it's going in a particular direction it has morphed over millennia and millennia in various ways the human brain especially when it's young can process an awesome amount of randomness, irregularity and just plain complexity and so languages just get jangled along because by the time we figure out that languages make so little sense, we're too old to break the habit and so language is fascinating in that way, however, that indirect line between what we're saying and what's going on underneath is indeed something that makes wharfianism a challenge for one thing because it's easy to think that the line between what we say and what we're thinking is more direct than it could possibly be and that leads us to all sorts of unsavory conclusions which many people who didn't call themselves morphians because morph didn't exist actually fell into in the past it's interesting today a uh, newspaper journalist or frankly even a linguist or anthropologist who's committed to preserving languages will confidently say this language expresses the world view of its People, and if the language dies, for example, then a view on the world is gone. Whereas 150 years ago, you could have, for some reason, they tended to be Germans saying things about how a language and the intellectual development of a people are certainly inextricably tied together and therefore it was said by some that Chinese must be evidence of some earlier stage of human development because it doesn't have the prefixes and the suffixes and the lists of those sorts of things that European languages do. Those people would say those sorts of things, we look at it now, it's in German, we chuckle, we figure they had three names and mustaches and they didn't have electricity. They didn't know any better the world was still at war, etc. Whereas today we think it's different if an anthropologist says it because the anthropologist means good things. But the problem is, as I've said, that there are bad things that you could come up with using the exact same paradigm. To say it today is really no different from somebody von something saying it in 1850 with different intent. What languages show is that fundamentally all people think alike.
1: Yeah. I mean, a sort of canonical example of that that malleability of of the way we perceive these differences is that taking a language like Chinese, it seems like we could say on the one hand, because syntactic relations are not clearly marked in it, it must reflect a more uh, primitive status of language development. Or we could say on the other hand, because syntactic relations are not clearly marked, the people who speak the language must be able to perform sublime feats of inference in order to understand the the sentences. So, presumably, it really does—it does depend how you perceive things. And you, you um, illustrate this by discussing uh, English as uh, from the outside, as it were, or the kinds of conclusions we could draw about our own language if we were minded to reason in that way.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's funny you mention that because there is a kind of feint that Warfians sometimes do, which is to say that context. If a language relies a lot on context, then that itself is a kind of complexity as well but besides a certain circularity that you find in ideas like that it becomes hard to hold it up when you see something like Keith Chen who is an economist at Yale very bright great great person but he had a TED talk and a paper both of them have gone viral where he says that because Chinese does not have what we would call a future tense it's not having a future tense makes its speakers think about the future more and therefore save money. Mind you, what I'm saying is that Chinese doesn't have a future and that therefore that makes its speakers think more about it because they have to because they don't have the reinforcement from the language and so he tries to make a correlation between whether languages have explicit ways of marking the future and the savings rates that these countries have had and as i show in the book it is Neat as that experiment is, it just falls apart. There is no correlation between whether or not a language has a way of saying will as in I will do something and its savings rates. And one way that we can really viscerally understand how off the Worfian view is is by trying to imagine it applied to us. Let's turn the microscope around. What is the worldview view? from English. and It's surprising how few people have addressed it. It's been addressed here and there, particularly by, by Anna Wierzbietzka, who has looked at things that happened in English over roughly the past 500 years and tried to tie them to aspects of England becoming a world empire and what it meant to be an English person as it developed a sense of nationhood, etc. But really, in the grand view, let's imagine what's the world view. And let's imagine how many different sorts of people speak English. And so we can imagine, say, um, Mahatma Gandhi, and Patricia Rutledge, and um, Paul Hogan, and me, and you. Now, all of us speak English. What's the worldview from that perspective? Let's bring in Winston Churchill, and let's bring in somebody from New Zealand, and let's bring in somebody from Singapore. All these people are speaking native English. What's the world view? And the first thing we think is that certainly the worldviews of these people are indicated by the various cultures that they grew up in. If there's something about the language that we all speak that illustrates some sort of worldview, given how different all these people are, there must it would have to be such a thin business whatever that worldview is is not something let's face it that any of us would find terribly interesting and even if we don't spread it all around the world within my own country I can think okay there's me there is Mary Tyler Moore the television star there is Barack Obama And then there is Melissa McCarthy, the movie star. See, I'm picking various people who are, you know, just American people. What is the worldview that we have in common? Now of course, we're American, but what is it that's coming from English verbs or the way English splits various things in the world up in terms of lexicon? And the idea, frankly, seems absurd. And I think that we need to think about the same thing when we look at a Native American language or if we look at Korean or if we're trying to say something about an Australian Aboriginal language where suddenly we think that their language must encapsulate a worldview. Is it that languages encapsulate worldviews when they're smaller? Because that doesn't make any sense at all. Obviously, culture is what distinguishes people, not the way their languages are put together, therefore creating a cultural outlook.
1: I suppose the original claim of Wolfe's analysis of Native American languages amounted to the claim that even this very disparate group of English speakers actually have quite a similar worldview, because the other worldview uh, exhibited by Hopi speakers, say, <laughs> is so exotic and unimaginable <laughs> to us as to be ungraspable. But there doesn't seem to be any uh, any very compelling evidence for that.
0: It's quite hopeless, and uh, I mean hopeless, and it's interesting. There are things people have said about English that are taken as implying some sort of worldview, such as that in English we say, I like apples. In many languages, it would be more likely to say, apples please to me. English is a language that's very agentive, as you might put it. It's you doing things to something else, or it's you And then there's the something else just slammed together. And so I am cold. So my state of being is in a cold state in many languages. It's, it colds to me and so many people are tempted to imagine that in other languages there's a sense that things are being done to you but to speak English is to imagine yourself out there with a rapier doing things to the world but the problem is that English only became that way because and this is not in the book but English only became that way because Vikings when they started invading learned Old English imperfectly and simplified it and so old English was full of the it colds me sorts of expressions as any good Germanic language tends to be modern English has much less of that sort of thing because basically Vikings came and screwed it up so you and I in a sense are speaking bad old English so it wasn't because of England taking over the world with a big club and therefore starting to talk more agentively. It was an accident. It had to do with some guys who came in taking over themselves and speaking the language badly and turning something along the lines of apples please to me into I like apples. And so you look at these sorts of things and you, you see these surface, the, these surface possible correspondences and once again we get to the fact that the trip between cognition and the surface is a highly fraught one and there are all sorts of reasons why you put something in one way even if you thought of it in another and the fact is that the idea that what you say reflects what you're like just never holds up when we look at a global view and that's one thing about my book that I think is um, important, which is that most Warfian experiments and, and views necessarily look at maybe two languages at a time, maybe four, it's necessary because if you're doing a sophisticated psychological experiment, you can't do 25 different languages. But to be the kind of linguist who happens to have occasion to look at grammars all over the world, and there are ones who do that who know a whole lot more than I do, but the kind of work that I've done does mean that I have to walk around with grammatical sketches of a great many languages in my head. To look at languages in a worldwide sense makes it clearer how arbitrary the connection between what a language is like and what a people is like are. It's very easy to see these connections if you're looking at, say, two groups, or especially if you're looking at one. It becomes clearer that we can't see things that way when you think of language globally and you think of how all 6,000 of them vary and how that doesn't really correlate meaningfully with how those 6,000 different cultures are Related, So that's another part of the language hoax. It's a book written by a language geek rather than a psychologist, and I think both views are important.
1: Yes, indeed. Um, I would like to cut back, if I meant, uh, ask a little bit more about um, Keith Chen's work, because mm-hmm. you discussed it in some detail. Um, one thing, I was very interested from a sort of social-anthropological perspective as to how linguists collectively reacted to the kinds of ideas that he was promoting – I wonder if you followed that and formed a, formed a view on it. Oh, yeah. Um,
0: he ran up against something that any of us would run up against if we were rooting around in a field that wasn't our own. And, I mean, he couldn't help it. He looked through grammars, and one does that. A linguist can get messed up doing this. I've gotten messed up doing with, doing this, which is that grammars are written in different ways, grammars linguistic grammatical descriptions are written for different audiences and it's easy to get tripped up and so for example in Russian there is no future and you can look in a book and it'll tell you well here's how to do the future but what they mean is here's what you say in Russian if you're trying to express what English expresses with the future tense with the I will. That's a very subtle business to fully understand that and to really fully understand it. You have to be a Slavicist, which I'm not, but I can sometimes badly play one on TV because I've mucked around with a lot of Slavic languages here and there. And I happen to teach in a department where there are many actual Slavicists and so I have people I can talk to about it. And the fact of the matter is that there isn't really any future per se in the typical Slavic language and with Chen's work what it comes down to is quite simply this the Slavic languages in the future they all almost all of them work the same way there is no real future that we could speak of it's easy to say that there is if you look in a book and so Chen has a problem first with that and it's not that he's incompetent it's that it's very hard to smoke this sort of thing out if you don't happen to be a linguist I don't know how he could have done any different but unfortunately it's a mistake that he almost couldn't help making but if you look at his chart of the world languages Uh, If you look at his chart of how languages correlate with savings rates, very simply the Slavic languages are all over the place. Now that makes no sense if the Slavic languages all do the future, most of them, there's one exception, but most of them do the future in exactly the same way. The savings rates should be exactly the same or at least close and they're not. The reason that Chen didn't know that was a mistake is because you have to know what a Slavic grammar is telling you about whether or not there's an actual future. And so once his work came out, the Slavic is the thing that I'm mentioning because I think it's easiest to explain, but there are other dicey things that he has to say about whether a language has a future and whether it doesn't. So it's a very clever notion. It's also highly counterintuitive, which makes you suspicious,
1: and it ends up just not working. I was um, I was particularly interested in the, the way people found it really counterintuitive. Um, I mean, I'm inclined to agree, and there are definitely good arguments against the, the methodology, both on the way it was coded, on and the possibility of chance capitalization and the stats and so on. Um, but what, what struck me first was that uh, a lot of people, many of whom really weren't, aren't at all committed Chomskyans in any real sense, mm-hmm. uh, were extremely sceptical about the idea right from the outset. Just the very the very notion that this could be the case seemed beyond the pale
0: hmm
1: well I think that there are two
0: typical linguist perspectives on this kind of thing I think that if you usually if you're somebody who specializes in writing detailed grammatical descriptions of little-known languages it becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly that all of this muck that you were making your way through could not possibly be seen as corresponding to the way a group of people think. So much of it is clearly just how a language has morphed over time and what the human brain can awesomely process. But I think that there is another kind of linguist, and this gets into a whole different issue that I've been thinking about lately, another kind of linguist who's not only writing these grammatical descriptions but is committed to saving the languages And if you're committed to saving the languages and saving the cultures from disappearance, then the idea that all of this muck that you're describing is cultural becomes appealing because it is a very handy argument to make outside of linguistics as to why you would want this language and this culture to survive. And so I've seen some linguists who know their languages very deeply they know all of this arbitrariness but they'll say that I think these things are cultural and I think part of what leads them to favor that view is that they are seeking an argument for keeping this thing from disappearing so there are two different perspectives that I think one can have now in terms of Chen the counterintuitiveness just comes from the idea that something that isn't there is something is it makes you think about it more I think most linguists in general would listen to that and be relatively skeptical. Not all, but most. And then you end up looking at the data and finding, as you expected, that the data didn't work. But linguists differ in terms of their basic orientation towards whorfianism. I think mostly in terms of how involved they are in um, preservation efforts. In my experience, the ones who are not will tell you, especially after a glass of wine, that the Warfian the whorfian idea just doesn't work. Other ones are more interested in seeing if it does, or more committed in showing that it does, because for them it's part of arguing for why languages should not disappear.
1: So, um, going forward, do you feel these kinds of popular misapprehensions about the about the extent of, of whorfianism are going to die down as more progress is made in linguistic understanding, or, or do you feel that we're stuck with them for the foreseeable future? <laughs>
0: That's a good question. I haven't thought about that, whether people are going to stop thinking this way. You know, on the fly, I would have to say no. I expect that Warfianism will continue to be popular and in a way for a good reason, which is that I think that it's part of being an enlightened Westerner today to understand that the world's peoples are all equal, that there's no such thing as a quote-unquote primitive Native, And I think that there's even a certain self-denigration that we think of as a badge of sophistication, the idea that we Westerners are, quote-unquote, so white, for example. That expression would have had no currency 40 years ago among people like you and me. And notice I'm saying it as a black American person, but I'm speaking from a certain first world over-educated culture. Oh, that's so white. That's a very modern and enlightened way of thinking. Warfianism plays right into that because it gives us a way of seeing that the other is our equal and maybe even our superior. That impulse in itself is a damn sight better than the way people like you and me would have thought of the world's other people 100 years ago. And so, no, I think that there will always be a certain appeal. I wouldn't say there's a direct line between some previous scenes in my life in the language hoax, but I found over the past 10 years that when I have expressed my views about Warfianism being oversold, there's a certain kind of person who gets almost angry, and that certain kind of person is not usually a linguist, but I can see that the idea that language is not people's culture, that their culture is their culture, that that's not why you're supposed to be interested in their language, that offends many people. For them, the idea that the language is a window on their non-Western way of looking at the world is precious. And I think that it's precious because we all consider it precious not to look down on the less fortunate or people who do not live in the world of tall buildings and psychoanalysis, etc. And so, no, I think Morpheanism is going to continue to have a certain narcotic appeal, Popular warfianism, as I call it in the book. But I think that there should be a take-home book-length argument for those who are interested from the other side because warfianism is supposed to be a scientific endeavor, and it's also supposed to be a humanistic endeavor, and I think that we can see the world's peoples through egalitarian eyes without subscribing to the warfian view, and I try to get that across in the book, too.
1: I'm glad you brought this up because I did really want to ask uh, how this issue uh, chimed with, with your broader view on, on race and its politics and how it related to uh, – saw it as relating to your work on, on those topics.
0: None really, although if you ask me – and I'm, I'm going by the seat of my pants again. There are two me's the person who writes about race and the person who writes about language, and they're just completely different tracks in my brain. But whorfianism has irritated me sometimes because there's a certain unintentioned condescension in it. Unintentioned, but it's there. And as a black American person, I'm naturally highly sensitized to that. And there are times when we are treating people like the toddler who we clap for when she doesn't spill her food and I know that that sort of condescension is not intentional but for example I remember once listening to a very good linguist talking about um, a Native American language that happens to have some prefixes that correspond to food preparation and touching and chewing now all languages have ways of indicating those things here's a language where they happen to be prefixes and this linguist was saying that um, in passing this linguist said that, that these prefixes and suffixes were cultural that this indicated that this culture places a particular value on food and then a story was told about a little boy enjoying his popsicle and you know an actual coup went up in the classroom not at the boy in the popsicle but when this linguist actually said the word cultural there was actually I heard a bunch of people of different ages and genders all go "ooh," and I remember thinking why in the world are we applauding that this sophisticated group of human beings liked food and liked sucking on popsicles. Why is that so special? And I thought, okay, yeah, we're we're showing that we understand that they're human. We're showing that we understand that they're not primitives. We're showing that they could be gourmets just like us. But really, there are higher achievements that we can celebrate in people than the fact that they – know how to mix seeds and substances and they like eating them and they like sucking on things and so it bothered me a little in the same way i suppose as it bothers me in this country when sometimes somebody who is seen as what we might call diverse is celebrated basically for just showing up or being present rather than for the caliber of what they do i haven't thought about that much until right now but yeah there a bee gets in my bonnet about that kind of thing. But mostly with the language hoax, it was about just my sense that languages are being misrepresented for egalitarian reasons that aren't necessary because you can look at the languages themselves and see that no matter what a culture is like, no matter what a people are like, those languages are showing the same mental operations happening in all of us.
1: Yep, I think that's a, that seems like a very... Really, uh inspiring and clear note on which, to, uh, on which to bring to an end, but I would like also to ask um, beyond writing this book uh, having placed these arguments on the record in, in this very readable and accessible format um, do you feel this is a battle that you want to continue to engage in the, the public <laughs> perception of this issue, or, or do your professional priorities lie elsewhere?
0: Oh, what an interesting question I think that one upshot of this book when the reviews start coming out from academics because that's a slower process the reviews from lay people so far seem to be pretty positive but I'm sure that there's another shoe that needs to drop where certain linguists and anthropologists are going to just tear me to ribbons they're going to be furious at this book and the reason is going to be that I'm undermining what one of the main pillars is of arguing for the preservation of languages and most of the world's languages can be argued to be on the verge of extinction. There are 6,000 languages now, there could be only 600 in the next 80, after about 80 years. That is scary, that worries me, I have written about it. And I thought about the fact that I need to make some sort of case for how language preservation can be defended if we can't have this Worfian notion. To the extent that I think that I am going to be called out by certain language preservation people on that basis, I think I need to have something to say, and I could imagine writing some more. It wouldn't be a whole book, but I could imagine showing up at some conferences, writing an article where I made that case. So if that response is virulent enough then as always, I will certainly come out fighting. But in general, the language hoax was Uh, uh, a pause for me because my main work is actually on language change and language contact around the world and I'm still working on paradigms connected to that but Warfianism has interested me for about the past 15 years for various reasons one of which is that the new Warfian work is in itself so fascinating but also because of the way the world seems to be picking up on it and I just decided it was time for me to get that one out of my system but you know I I like a fight, and I also am very concerned with the world languages, every bit as concerned as the people who are out there trying to preserve them. And so, yeah, I, I get the feeling this is not the end of Warfianism and me.
1: Oh, well, I wish you uh, success in your, in your hopefully peaceful encounters with the uh, language <laughs> preservation people. Uh, but until we hear reports of those, uh, just like I say John to thank you very much for your time.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very
1: much. I've been talking to John McWhorter about the language hoax. This is Chris Cummins from New Books in Language saying thank you for listening.